You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So we do a really good job uh, on, on a lot of these uh, on a lot of these areas of, of Christian thought, but church history is one of those things that continually tends to elude us a little bit, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one, it's just difficult, and there's a lot of it. Uh, two, it's not redemptive history. <laughs> it's ugly. It's me- well, redemptive history is too, I suppose, but it's not the history of salvation. It's not the history of God's work uh, through His people uh, and that culminates in, in the work of Christ uh, and then the promises of, of Christ. It's, it's actually uh, quite quite different in some ways in that it is... I'm sorry. Uh, it, it's history. And history uh, doesn't really carry any promises with it. It carries none. <laughs> it's, it, it's a field of examination. It's, we have to interpret it. We have to figure it out. Now, granted, we interpret the Bible as well, but we interpret the Bible under the promise of the Holy Spirit, under the third person of the Trinity. We have a gift that comes with that interpretation. Church history doesn't necessarily work that way. We can't always appeal to that gift with the same security. But I think we can appeal to a sense of providence with that security, a sense of uh, there's something to be learned here. And we need to do a better job of it, I think, as, as a church. How are we going to do this in, in five weeks? How are we going to get at uh, 2,000 years of church history? Well, uh, there'll be a lot of memorization involved. No, I'm kidding. There'll be none. <laughs> there'll be absolutely no memorization involved. Uh, I've tried to isolate the big stuff. I've tried to isolate stuff that I would say, what should every Christian know? If you're just walking around in the world, what should we know? And then why does it matter? Why does it matter that we know it? Um, in, in, the, in the context of our Christian lives. So if you'll just bear with me, uh, I will, uh, I'll try to get us through the early church this morning. Then we'll go to the medieval world next week, the Reformation world, etc. All the way up to the present uh, day into October. Um, let me just begin with what the, the, the world looked like. Uh, what, what the Christian world might have looked like. You see the darkest blue spots? The darkest blue, not, that, that's kind of a greenish hue here. A light, you see, the, those are the earliest pockets of the early Christian world. So these are the areas of Christendom that grew from the time of the book of Acts all the way through about the year 300. Okay, does that make sense? The, the darkest spots. Then the greenish spots are the ones that where we see the church growing uh, between the years 600 and 800. All right, just to give you a visual, all right, of where, uh, of the geography of the early church. We, we know, of course, if we really want to say, well, where does church history begin? The book of Acts. <laughs> it's, it's simple. But the book of Acts, of course, keeps us within the redemptive orbit of Paul. Paul is our first theologian. Paul is the first who gives us a method for thinking about what the church is and who Christ is. And of course, we all know that begins down there in in Israel. But this is about a 600-year window of the spread of Christianity in the Mediterranean world, the darkest spots being the earliest pockets. And within those dark spots, it's harder to see our little dots. 
down, uh, there's one in France, there's Rome, uh, that's probably Lyon, uh, there's Carthage, there's Alexandria. These are where the major metropolitan cities were, the, the bishoprics, the offices of the bishop, the presbyters, the overseers, okay, Antioch, Constantinople. So I want you to just have that as a visual, as a mental picture of what you're looking at when you talk about the early church. You're talking about a slow expanse over time, beginning in the book of Acts, but over several hundred years it begins to populate this Mediterranean basin and then European continental area, but with certain centers of what, and the reason I bring this up, these centers are where the, the, um, the arguments happen, <laughs> okay, that we're about to talk about. The centers are where the debates break out. And, and, and we say, well, oh, that's, that's not good. Well, read the book of Acts. They broke out pretty quickly, actually. What is this thing called the Christ? Who is this? What are we doing with this? How are we connected to it? So does that map kind of help us visualize what we're talking about and the slow spread? Another map that would be important to look at when you think about the early, early church is what I would call the linguistic map, the language map. Uh, culture, language, religion are all tied together. And the language map is actually pretty straightforward. There was a western side here, which primarily spoke Latin, and an eastern side to the early Christian church, which primarily spoke Greek. Okay, That means the way theology happened, and the way they talked about theology, and the way they talked about the Bible, happened within those languages. And the dominant one, the one where the most productivity took place, was Greek. It was on the eastern side. Actually, that's where, mo- I'm sorry, where most of our uh, early uh, arguments about what theology is happened. They happened in the eastern side of this map. We had a few in the west, and they're, they're big ones. Uh, and in the west ultimately ends up being a filter for some of those debates from the east. That's where that story gets really long and complicated, and you can really get in the weeds. We're not going to try to get in the weeds right now. We're going to try to stay out of weeds. <laughs> okay. So there's a couple of maps. The, the growth of the early church and the spread, the centers of, uh, of, of where there was dense populations and a sort of intellectual culture. Then we have this uh, sort of language divide in this world that was shaping the way the early church understood itself as well. Okay, there's three sort of rubrics, three, uh, three titles, I would say, three, three places or, or uh, things you want to park your car in when you start talking about the context. And that's all I'm doing here is mentioning the context of how early the early church existed, what it lived in, what was its milieu, right? What we say, ours is what? It's a liberal democracy, it's capitalism, it's a global uh, economy. I mean, that would be our milieu and, and a kind of relativistic do what you want. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. Now, that, that's us. That's us. Well, what was the early Christian world? Well, same thing. No, I'm kidding. It was something like that. Uh, there are some analogies there, but the milieu, the environment that, that, that it grows out of, uh, I think consists of these three elements. Um, and I'm going to go backwards here. I'm going to start over here with the Jewish religion. The first and most important theological problem, historical problem, that Christianity had to wrestle with was the question of the relationship to Israel and the Old Testament. We'll say more about that in a moment. By far, 
by far, and, and of course, we just said a moment ago, the Apostle Paul is our starting point there. He is our primary interpreter of that. But this, you can imagine as that world spread on that map, these arguments are still going to happen. Are you Jews? What are you exactly? The second context is the world of Roman politics. How are you tied to the citizenship of the empire? How are you connected to the imperium and all the privileges that go with it? Why are you weird and not like us? You know, um, what do you mean there's another king in another city besides Rome? <laughs> you know, so we had this political context that Christianity is growing in. At the same time, it's wrestling with its Jewish roots. And finally, uh, that's supposed to be Plato and Aristotle from uh, the Raphael uh, School of Athens, um, the Greeks. The Greeks set the language. The Greeks set the philosophy. The Greeks set the education uh, of, the, of the environment of early Christianity. They had already for several centuries been wrestling with questions like what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Um, how, how do we know these things? How do we trust these things, right? What is my point with all this? Because we don't come to church every day, every week and say, well, please tell me how we fit into this cultural context as we read the Bible well, the Bible and, and, and the, a lot of the things we profess, though, emerge out of this. It emerge out of this collision of forces. And our earliest brothers and sisters in Christ were having to navigate this. They were having to navigate this. Sometimes you had to navigate it at a very personal, low, uh, uh, simple level. I have to live in this environment as a farmer or a craftsman uh, or a fisherman. Or I, I have to live in this environment as a lawyer or um, a, a, a teacher or a bishop. Either way, this is your environment that is going to shape these kind of questions. Three big problems that I want to try to, to take, take us home with today. Three big problems. One I just mentioned. The problem of the relationship to the Old Testament, to the New, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. This has to be negotiated. And the earliest church is where the negotiation begins, as we'll see in a moment. The problem of Hellenistic philosophy is what you guys are professing. Is it just one more school of thought? And I, can I send my kid to study with you and they'll be okay? <laughs> you know, is it just one more arena of how to be a good person and how to live or, or how to be a calculating good person, even, you know, the modern university, right, the, the, the sophist. Right? How, how do I do this, right? That's the second one. Are you just another school of thought? Are you Jews? Are you just another school of thought? And then finally, related is, are you a cult? Are you a Gnostic? Do you have something to sell me in terms of sort of a secret wisdom? Do you have a kind of wisdom that, uh, almost like a club, that I can join and be a part of? You see, to have, uh, you know, to have some status or something in this crazy ancient world. Yes, talking about the last one, the problem of Gnosticism. All right, so out of this milieu and all around this land, this territory, uh, these, oops, I don't want to get the punchline away. These... These are the problems the early church is wrestling with as it forms its identity. And let me suggest this, as, as, where we're headed with this. Every one of these problems 
that they're wrestling with is relevant to this very hour. Not in the same way. History doesn't work that way, but history gives us analogies. History gives us points of comparison. History gives us a toolbox to say, when I don't recognize where I am, can I recognize where others have been? And the church is still here, even though it's come a long way in its development. Okay. Let me say a word about Gnosticism, because what I want to do here is show you three problems. I want to show how these three problems got worked out in very specific ways, okay, and uh, in the time we have. These three problems were worked out in very specific ways, and Gnosticism deserves a little more attention, okay? It is a blend of pagan philosophy, often with Christianity, so you would take a dominant sort of religious teaching of the day. One comparison has been made to New Age religions or, um, you know, just if you go to a bookstore and see the New Age shelf, it, 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 a if you ever go and look at a religion shelf, it's like a wall of books. And Christianity is like right here, so maybe not in Birmingham, but in like other big cities and such. And, and then it's just covered with all kinds of spiritualism, spiritual, how to be spiritual, right? That's Gnosticism. How do I be spiritual in, in, in kind of very simple terms? But often it would come under the guise of, oh, yeah, but we, we like your Jesus stuff, too. So it would be an admixture of it, right? The key to Gnosticism was we've got the right knowledge. Hang out with us. Come study with us. We can teach you things that maybe are related to Scripture, but even better, right? That addition to the Bible. That's what Gnosticism, in the main, it was a very complicated thing, but in the main, that's what they did, all right? And they were all over this world, all over. Jason? Yeah? Is that to say, would that be to say that the Gnostics would say, you, you can't figure this out yourself, you need us? Yes. Yes, and it would also be to say, sure, there's this thing called the church, but that's boring. We've got much more interesting stuff. We've got much easier and sexier ways to explain this. <laughs> Come join us. Uh, specifically with the question of good and evil. They had a very, the Gnostics tended to look at the body as, as very bad. And the spirit as very good. And so they interpreted all of reality through this, this dualistic struggle between matter and uh, spirit. Um, and, of course, Christianity denies that. We, we believe God created good. And we, we, we believe something else. I don't know if that helps, but yeah. And they're all over this ancient world selling their wares. Let me, let me, let's dive into this first problem, the problem of Judaism and the Old Testament, as it relates to two things, all right? The problem of Judaism and the problem of Gnosticism come together with one giant struggle in the first century. What is the Bible? What is the Word of God, and how should it be understood as the Word of God? This is called Marcionism. This was the struggle because, like all isms, it was named after somebody. Marcion, all right? Marcion. Marcion uh, was declared a heretic. I, I say he was a heretic. He became one. Uh, he, he, uh, he was a teacher. He was a church leader who made a very hard distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. 
He said these are not the same God. The God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and justice and violence. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. He made a very profound division. He, he broke continuity between the Testaments. Okay, And you, again, we can go back and start with Paul with this argument. This is serious, though. This is a really serious question. Because if we're not Jews, what are we? And Marcion is saying, well, we're really just a religion of love. We're a new kind of people. Um, but we don't worship that inferior God of the Old Testament. There's a new kind of God, the God of love. The redemptive God is the God of love. What does Marcion do? He puts forth an idea that the Bible really should only consist of the New Testament. And even then he edited it and picked certain books that he wanted. And it takes off. It takes off. It's not like this just happened in isolation. Oh, there's Marcion over there in the corner you know, with his Bible, because then you could ignore him. <laughs> it's, all of a sudden people believed this. And a great, great debate began to rage in the first century, the very early first century of the church. What is the Bible? And it had to be answered. It had to be answered. How do we understand the scriptures? Three figures in particular, I, you don't have to memorize names, but it's important to mention them because it's church history. Respond to Marcion. Three figures in particular respond to Marcion. One is a guy named Justin Martyr. The other is a guy named Tertullian. And another is an Irenaeus. And what's interesting about these three guys, I want to go back to the map. Well, Justin Martyr lived down in basically Samaria, Syria, and ended up in Rome where he was killed. He was martyred uh, because he refused to sacrifice to he got, he got crossways with some Stoics and Cynics, and they, they had him killed, as they do. And so he ends up in Rome. Uh, Tertullian's down here in North Africa. And Irenaeus is in southern France. What's my point? They're not gathered in one place talking. But all three of these very bright men, these very gifted men, are saying, we've got a problem. Yes, ma'am. Marcion is, he is from uh, Alexandria and uh, Samaria. He's in that, that crest around the Levant down there. He's, he's in that area. Northern Egypt up to Samaria is where he, Syria is where he did most of his teaching. All three of these guys, they say, you know, they live in different places, but what do they say? We've got a problem. <laughs> And all three of them proceed to write what I think is a very aptly titled Against Heresy. That's what they call their works. What are you writing? I'm writing a book against heresy. What are you calling it? Against heresy. <laughs> you know? And that's what they begin to do. And this is one of the, this is not the only, but this is a huge problem they begin to tackle is what is uh, what is the scripture? And it's out of these guys. I want, the reason I mention them is for our purposes, a couple of things. Here's a quote from Irenaeus. Uh, you, you can look at uh, as I say this. Two things I think are important, our takeaway out of this moment in church history. One, the canon. We begin to get the formation of a definitive canon from leaders in the church who across geographies are agreeing, 
cross regions are agreeing, this is the Word of God, and this is why it's the Word of God. That's pretty special, if you think about it. That's pretty interesting. Okay? And two, it's very likely, especially out of Irenaeus' work, is where we get the Apostles' Creed, the beginning of a creed, the beginning of a way to confess our faith. Are you a Marcionite? No. What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. You see, so two things emerge there that we still practice today. One, we practice an authoritative scripture in our church, in our church history at the Advent. And two, we say the Apostles' Creed. So that's the first thing. That's one of the first great events, the Gnostic Judaism problem. Okay? Uh, I, I would love to take questions, but, but for the sake of time, maybe I could just press through and we could do it at the end, maybe, if that, that's okay. Um, well, remember the second one, the problem of Hellenistic philosophy, the Greeks? What were the Greeks? How did the Greeks influence the early church? Well, frankly, that's a lifetime of study. That, that's, that's a world of study. We have a couple of minutes. So here's, here's what I'm going to try to show you, right? Uh, if we isolate the important, what, like really significant, like ground-shaking kind of movements, I think there, there are two uh, ways that uh, we find Greek thought um, influencing the early church, okay? That, we, that every Christian should know. And I'll say... Say why? Just just a moment. The first is Arianism, or Arius. Anybody heard that guy before? The Arians, the, and this isn't the Arian like the Arian race of of the later of the, of, of later history. Uh, this is a, a named after a, a person. I'll say more about. And the other is Pelagianism, or Pelagius is the person they're named after. Okay. Let me try to tease out why these were sort of Greek thinking problems and how the church responded to them. Uh, Arianism began with a, uh, the teaching of a presbyter or bishop named Arius. And I want to say, uh, note something here. What's interesting about Marcion, Arius, and eventually Pelagius, these were not outsiders agitating, like Gnostics saying, come join us. These were insiders. These were ordained men, or priests, if not bishops, who began a different teaching than the consensus, or at least what was forming as a consensus. All right? And I think that's very significant for us as well. It wasn't somebody outside the church making this rattle. It was somebody inside the church presenting something contrary to the received teaching. Arianism starts in Alexandria, North Africa. What does Arianism say? It says Christ is not divine. Christ is a, crea- is a creature. Christ is a creation, like we are creations, sort of, without getting into the, the details. But what's important to see is he's a moral mediator or a moral example. What makes Christ divine? What makes him worth our time? He sets a good example for us. He teaches us how to be good people. He's the highest moral form of humanity that God has given us. 
Well, what Arius has done here is extremely uh, intellectually appealing <coughs> to the Greek mind because the Greek mind could not conceive of perfection becoming imperfect, of something that doesn't change becoming changeable. The problem of the incarnation was at the heart of the problem of the Greek mind. Who is this Christ and how can he be both God and man? And Arius says, it's really kind of simple. He wasn't God, but he was an exemplar of morality, the highest exemplar of created morality. Uh, it's hard to even express how much this, this took over the church for the most part. Uh, this became an enormous struggle within the church, so much so that the very first Christian emperor, Constantine, uh, had to call the very first Christian ecumenical council in Turkey, the Council of Nicaea. And every Christian should know this, because, it was at, because this is the great struggle. Who is Christ? Is he one with God, or is he something different from God that we're just to look to as a teacher in an example? The Council of Nicaea, how, does it, how, does, how do they respond to this? Well, the Council of Nicaea issues something we should know called the Nicene Creed. All right? It was the church's first response to Arianism, but it was the beginning, like so many controversies, and not the end. Uh, this debate went on for a long time, and dare I say it's reemerged in the modern world as well, in, in our time, in, since the Enlightenment it's once again come back into the church, okay? How did the Arians react? They said, well, why can't we just all be in the same church? How do we hurt you? How, do you, how are we hurting each other? They asked for tolerance. They asked for tolerance, broad-mindedness, and an acceptance. And they really grew fast. They really grew fast. They, they spread all over that map uh, and could be found in every corner of Europe and the Mediterranean basin. And many, many leading bishops took to Arianism. As a matter of fact, it could be argued at one point, um, it, it would be hard to know where the Orthodox teaching was in this century of, um, of, the, of the 300s. It was that conflicted. There was, though, a minority movement. There was a minority report that moved against it, led by a man named Athanasius of Alexandria. And Athanasius stood firm and wrote the most powerful treatises against Arianism that survive. And what was he defending? He was defending the Incarnation. Who you say Christ is, is the hinge of everything. Who do you say that I am? There were things Christ did. This is a quote, of course, from on the Incarnation. This was the great work that he, he presents to try to make the case. And frankly, long game, he won out. Uh, even longer game, though, I think we're still in, in, in a wrestling match in Christian theology over this question. The divine nature of Christ. A final conflict is Pelagianism. Again, an insider, a Brit. He's a British monk who goes to Rome around the year 380. All right? 
Pelagius began a new school of thought. This time it was about anthropology and soteriology, the doctrine of human nature and the doctrine of salvation. All right? And what does he say? He says, Pelagius, uh, Pelagius says, Adam's sin was Adam's sin alone in isolation. There's no federated, there's no inheritance of original sin. And as such, we have a complete moral freedom in our nature where we reenact sort of the role of Adam in our, our existence every time we make a moral decision. Right? So what is he saying? He's saying that the human will is completely free to choose God and the good. And there is no obstacle to it. God is extended. He's there. You just have to reach out. All right? How could a good God judge people born with original sin if it's something we inherited? Through Adam. Okay. Who answers Pelagianism? Augustine. Augustine is the great church father who challenges Pelagianism. Augustine saw with absolute clarity based on his study of the New Testament that if we deny human fallenness, we have effectively denied the need for grace. There's no corollary once you have decided people don't have the capacity in themselves to be like God, to choose God. Augustine, of course, responds with a treatise called On the Freedom of the Will, where he reiterates the Pauline teaching uh, that our wills are hopelessly bound by sin and that we're helpless apart from grace. Now, to be real quick on this, he doesn't, what Augustine is very careful not to do, he does not say we do not have moral freedom. He, I'm sorry, he doesn't say we don't have freedom. He, Augustine never denies human agency or freedom. I'm glad we're getting this in at the end. What he says is, <laughs> what he says is, we, our moral freedom, our, the spiritual freedom, our nature, the soul freedom, is incapacitated by sin. You can get out and choose, you can go choose to, to run off the building right now. That's not what Augustine's suggesting. And he's very careful to talk about a distinction between the, the will as a moral agent and the will as, a, as an act of uh, motion or movement or choice. All right? The only free moral agent in history is Adam and Eve moral agents, and by that agency, sin becomes part of the human condition. This is Augustine's great narrative that still demands a lot of attention. He has a great line from one of his letters, I once labored hard for the free will of man until the grace of God at length came and overcame me. Wrap up, and then, I, and then I'll, take, I'll take questions. Um, just real quick wrap up. Why does this matter for today? Why should the early church matter for today? Because the authority and reliability of Scripture still matter for today. The person and work of Christ still matter for today, and the need for salvation and grace matter. The, the church is divided on every one of these issues. And... What do I mean by that? I mean, we, I don't have to explain because we know we're Americans. We can go across the street, go down the road, and find something that's taught totally different. But on these issues, 
But what's at the heart of it? That the early church struggled mightily across time and place to answer this authoritatively. We've inherited it, but we still have to contend with it. We can't just walk away as if it's a settled issue. It has to be resettled with every generation. These questions. So that's what I would say is our lesson from the early church in 30 minutes or something. Basically, with this class called the next two weeks, and we'll come up through history to present day. Yes, we'll end with what the 21st century. Yeah. That was a lot. I apologize for that. I don't know how to do it without and do it justice, though. Um, any, any other questions? Uh, yeah, eventually, I suppose you'll apply this to the current church dynamic. Yes, sir. I will. Now, right? I will. What I would just yes. What I would start with right now is we're still in. We don't ever get out of this orbit the, of these three issues, and and we haven't. We have examples from the past we can look at. Not in the mid-300s. Not in the mid-300s, but it's beginning. The, the, the question of, the, of Rome's supremacy is beginning to emerge after Irenaeus' work and some others. They begin, part of what they begin, the argument begins against heresy is we have the apostolic inheritance. You don't. We inherit. Polycarp, Polycarp taught me and Polycarp walked with John. Therefore, we're authoritative. You're not. Where did they die? Well, either died in Rome. So the, the, the conversation has begun. Yeah, yeah Mark. I can understand the attraction of Pelagianism. What would be the attraction of Arianism? Uh, rational. Yeah. How, can a, how can a thinking person really believe oh. that? So, I mean, come so on. Pride. You're educated. So uh, you're, you're a college-educated man, Mark, and there's science. I mean, right? <laughs> I do, and I brought it. <laughs> I, my mentor, my, the guy I studied with, I wrote my dissertation with this guy, uh, Robert Wilkin. Uh, he was at the University of Virginia, and I highly recommend this book. It's accessible. The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I'll loan it. <laughs> Thank you. Middle Ages next week. <laughs> so. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.